You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Claude Shannon was spending some time at Oxford. This is a selection from that period of his life. Claude was pondering a serious problem, or at least a serious problem for him. What emerged from the Oxford stint was one of the more curious papers of Shannon's career. Frustrated by having to drive on the left side of the road, Shannon engineered a custom-built solution, quote, the fourth-dimensional twist, or a modest proposal in aid of the American driver in England, opens with a tale of the woes of the American driver abroad. An American driving in England is confronted with a wild and dangerous world. With our long-ingrained driving habits, the world seemed totally mad. Cars, bicycles, and pedestrians would dart out from nowhere, and we would always be looking in the wrong direction. The car was usually filled with curses from the men and screams and hysterical laughter from the women as we careened from one narrow escape to another. The passengers were given to sudden, involuntary motions, shielding the face or slamming on non-existent brakes. The turn indicator and windshield wiper controls were also reversed from American practice, and we found ourselves signaling turns with the windshield wiper, fast for a right turn, slow for a left. The whole driving situation was not particularly improved by the narrowness of English streets and the high speed of English drivers, nor was our inner security increased by the predilection of the English for building stone walls immediately adjacent to the roads. Shannon proposed an idea that even he admitted sounded, quote, grandiose and utterly impractical, the ideal dream of a mathematician, end quote. His solution was to create a fourth dimension, one that reversed perceptions of left and right. How will we do this? In a word, with mirrors. If you hold your right hand in front of a mirror, the image appears as a left hand. If you view it in a second mirror, after two reflections it appears now as a right hand, and after three reflections again as a left hand, and so on. Our general plan is to encompass our American driver with mirror systems, which reflect his view of England an odd number of times. Thus he sees the world about him not as it is, but as it would be after a 180-degree fourth-dimensional rotation. Finally, a series of adjustments to the steering system would translate the American driver's motions into British English. Turning the wheel left would make the car go right, and vice versa. Et voila. Complete with drawings, figures, and schematics, the paper was, of course, written with tongue firmly in cheek but it remains the most memorable record of Shannon's time at Oxford. At more than 2,100 words, it was not simply a throwaway idea. It shows Shannon's willingness to spend hours fleshing out the implications of a joke, as well as his imperturbable indifference to the honors that came his way. And it speaks, perhaps, to the minor anxieties of a world traveler, who mainly found travel something to be tolerated, who would just as soon have brought his home with him, even if only as an optical illusion. Jimmy Sony has served as an editor at the New York Observer and the Washington Examiner and as managing editor of the Huffington Post. He is a former speechwriter and his written work and commentary have appeared in Slate, The Atlantic, and CNN, among other outlets. He's a graduate of Duke University. Rob Goodman is a doctoral candidate at Columbia University and a former congressional speechwriter. He has written for Slate, The Atlantic, Politico, and The Chronicle of Higher Education. His scholarly work has appeared in History of Political Thought, the Kennedy Institute of Ethics Journal, and the Journal of Medicine and Philosophy. Together, 
Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman are the co-authors of Rome's Last Citizen, The Life and Legacy of Cato, Mortal Enemy of Caesar. Their new book written together is A Mind at Play. It's the life of Claude Shannon. Thank you for joining me, Jimmy and Rob. Thank you very much for having us. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jimmy. And Rob, second. Claude Shannon was a remarkable man, and he's remarkable as much for the fact that his name is completely unfamiliar as he is for what he did, because what he did was so important to the world we currently live in. Tell us a little bit about his earliest life. Where did he come from? And I think that the his parents really do a pretty good job of explaining him. <laughs> so Claude Shannon grows up in, in Upper Michigan. Uh, he is raised in a town, Gaylord, Michigan, 2,000, 3,000 people, a small Midwest town. And Claude Shannon has a kind of tinkering boyhood. Um, he, you know, I, we, we describe, we think about it now as something like his parents were free range parents. Uh, <laughs> they let him play with broken radios. He built a, a barn elevator in the back of a, in, in, a, in, a, in a friend's barn. And the friend, the, Claude did the, did the handiwork. The friend was the guinea pig and the friend lived to tell the tale. Um, you know, he was, grew up playing and reading and, and writing and reading books about codes. Uh, he was a wigwag signaler, um, which was a sort of Morse code by flags. Uh, he was somebody who had a, had a parents. His mom was a musician and she was a teacher. His father was one of these people in small towns that do basically everything. He was a probate judge. He was the undertaker. He was a furniture salesman. Um, but this was an, an incredibly, incredibly small town. And Claude Shannon was had a sort of normal boyhood. And I only say that because if you look at other biographies of geniuses, other stories of their early life, uh, it's often the case that their parents put intense pressure on them. Um, you think of John Stuart Mill uh, and his father uh, trying to sort of you know beat him into the shape of a prodigy, essentially. Beethoven, the same thing. Um, in, by, by contrast, Claude Shannon has a thoroughly normal childhood. Um, he's allowed to do what he wants. He jumps into mathematics in part because his sister is good at it, and there's a little bit of sibling, sibling rivalry there. Uh, she gives him math puzzles, and he tries to solve them. Um, but apart from that, there's there's no there's no indication that he, he that or or there's no temptation on the part of his parents to beat him into a genius. Uh, he simply goes about his childhood, graduates high school in three years, uh, and heads off to the University of Michigan. Rob Goodman, uh, tell tell us about one of my favorite episodes from his childhood, the electric fence. <laughs> yeah, this is the coolest thing. Um, so, you know, when Shannon is uh, a young boy in uh, 1920s rural Michigan, um, it was uh, fairly common to communicate between places that weren't served by telegraph wires over barbed wire fences. And the, the way that people would do this, the farmers and other people living in these rural areas, is that they would electrify these fences and use... Uh, breaks in the current along the fences to tap out sorts of uh, Morse code systems. Um, so Shannon wasn't the one to invent this, but the cool thing is is that he uh, built his own version of this when he was uh, just a boy of around uh, you know ten or twelve years old uh, to connect his house to his best friend's house. And what we like about the story is that um, it shows that Shannon's penchant for uh, thinking about signals and communication and and tinkering goes back to the earliest thing we know about him. And at the same time, it's pretty great that uh, 
you know, a, as a young boy, he was allowed to play with things like barbed wire fences and electricity, and it seems like he never got in trouble for it. In fact, I think this was encouraged. Uh, you know, even uh, even after this project, he was always known for uh, rigging up whatever he could get his hands on. He loved to repair broken radios and work with little uh, remote control boats that he'd float on ponds. Um, with his uh, same friend he worked on with the barbed wire telegraph, uh, they built together an elevator uh, in the friend's barn um, that went from the ground floor to the second floor of the loft. Um, they also built a little trolley system that ran in the backyard. And I, I think the uh, the sister of Claude's friend said that Claude was usually the brains of the operation, and his friend Rodney was usually the guinea pig. Um, but uh, between the two of them, uh, they, they managed, whenever they weren't in school, to always be rigging something or other up. And that's the sort of... Uh, um, that's the sort of background that Claude Shannon came out of, of someone who was always in a mood to take things apart and figure out how they worked and put them back together. He was, in a sense, an early version of what we now call a maker. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, I, think that's, I think that's absolutely right. And, and I think more importantly, this speaks to the two poles of his both talent and interest that led him to become the father of the information age. Uh on one hand, there was this great mechanical aptitude for understanding, like, hardware. And on the other hand, he was he was a, a natural mathematician. Uh, uh, Jimmy, tell us a little bit about his, his time at Ann Arbor. So he goes to the University of Michigan, and uh, this is at a time when, you know, he sends in a, a six-page application that's fill-in-the-blank. Uh, <laughs> the envy of, of college students today who have to write endless essays and get letters of recommendation. At the time, we found his college application. Uh, it's surprising what you can discover when you when you ask. Um, and you could just cross out the spelling errors. That's all he did. So he had some spelling errors in that application, crossed them out, but it didn't prevent the University of Michigan from accepting him. Uh, so he goes to the University of Michigan, and this is at a time when the university's engineering school had expanded considerably. Uh, there was a, a particularly enterprising dean, Mortimer Cooley, who uh, was just one of these people who was an institution builder. Uh, he knew how to get the resources he needed to get the things that he wanted. He convinced the board to give him a lot of money, and the engineering school ends up nearly surpassing and may for a brief period have surpassed the liberal arts college in total attendance. But it, they also had incredible facilities. So Claude Shannon's arriving at a particularly auspicious time. Um, he gets there, and part of what's happened is that the curriculums for math and engineering, engineering's curriculum has expanded so much that it has a lot of overlap with the math curriculum. He manages to get both degrees without too much trouble. He doesn't really think deliberately about the fact that he's doing both math and engineering. He's just drawn to those two interests, and there's enough courses in common that he's able to sort of you know, uh, get the two degrees without too much trouble. He also spends that time uh, reading, as best as we can tell, reading academic journals. And, and the reason that this matters, I think, is if you're a college student and you sort of have the normal hustle and bustle of college life, you have your friends, you have uh, you know, activities, you go to parties, uh, it's, a, it's a little peculiar if you are somebody like Claude Shannon and you are reading academic journals. He takes it a step further. At the back of these academic journals, they give uh, they offer the chance for people to solve puzzles, and so they'll they'll give math problems. And we uh, found, uh, I think we're the first to find the the two first published works of Claude Elwood Shannon uh, inside a math journal where he solved two math problems. And for the the mathematically inclined, uh, they are included in the book, and you can take your and try your hand at, at trying to solve them. Uh, Rob Goodman, uh, one of the things I, I really liked was that. Um, at this time, engineering and math were both seen to be outgrowths of shop. 
Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> so talk about how that kind of indecision between these two um, uh, poles really served Shannon well and how he set himself up quite well. Yeah, and this carries over to Shannon's time also at uh, at MIT, mm-hmm. um, and and both the engineering school at Michigan and MIT, which was you know dedicated to science and engineering, um, were really still connected to the world of uh, industry and uh, mechanical aptitude and and factories. Um, I think one of the architects of MIT's campus, we looked up his design for the campus and said that it, it was going to be a campus designed on the principles that obtained in the best industrial works and factories to uh, to provide for the avoidance of lost motion and efficiency and everything. So that was the sort of environment in, in which Shannon played a part. But at the same time, as you mentioned, he also um, you know, just studied a great deal of uh, abstract math and uh, cryptography and um, uh, uh, symbolic logic, uh, which he took in philosophy classes as an undergrad. So the neat thing about Shannon was that he has uh, both of these sorts of backgrounds. And when he gets to MIT and starts working uh, as an assistant on some of the very early analog computers there, like the, the differential analyzer, um, he's part of an environment that, of course, values high-level abstract mathematical thinking, but at the same time, an environment where people still, just like he loved to do, uh, got their hands dirty. Um, they thought about uh, calculus and differential equations in almost a sort of a, a physical way as things that these analog computers could almost act out uh, with the way that their uh, shafts and gears turned on. You know, I'll give you an example on, on the analog computers that Shannon was working on. Um, the different uh, shafts in the machine would represent different variables in an equation, and the larger the variable, the faster the particular shaft would turn, and that was a way that the machine would sort of act out an equation. So, so anyway, um, Shannon has this aptitude for building things and taking things apart. He's also studied logic. Uh, and, and the neat thing is is that by combining these two disciplines, he's able to arrive at, at a major breakthrough, which is kind of the first distinguishing thing in his career when he's 21. He, he writes this famous master's thesis, um, which people have called the most important master's thesis ever. Uh, and it, it's the one in which he shows that uh, he brings these two worlds and interests of his together. And he shows that uh, the switches in these early analog computers um, can basically act out everything you need to act out in symbolic logic. It, it, it was the first time that someone showed that computers can actually do and perform logic, and all you need are sets of binary switches that can represent uh, on or off or one or zero. Uh, in Shannon's case, these were electrical relays. They're actually switches that turned on and off. But, you know, as he also showed, it doesn't matter what you're using to represent that switch. It could be something like a, a switch. It could be a vacuum tube. Um, later on, it could be a, a transistor, which is invented in the... Uh, 40s um, and, and are still in all of our electronics. As long as you have a device that can represent two different positions, Shannon showed, you can basically do anything you need to do in logic. And that was the, the very earliest step towards this idea that uh, machines can, in some sense, uh, imitate brains. I think what uh, I really loved is the sense of characterization in the, the character arc. Shannon's character arc is really fascinating because he's a quiet man through pretty much throughout his life. He is surrounded by some wild characters. And I absolutely love Vannevar Bush, who is, there are scenes with him in the 90s, a movie came out that was actually made in Santa Cruz, largely. Uh, it was featured Pierce Brosnan and uh, Jeff Fahey. Hmm. Uh Based on one an early ostensibly based on an early Stephen King story when they were being published in magazines like Sherry and Gent, it was a movie called The Lawnmower Man. It had little to do with uh, 
the Stephen King story, it actually had a, well, a whole lot more to do with the scene that I read, read where you introduced Vannevar Bush. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Vannevar Bush. So he is someone who plays an enormous role in 20th century science. Um, I think at one point uh, he was a presidential science advisor and time called him the general of science. Uh, And so he is responsible for directing um, millions of dollars worth of, of, of resources and people and scientific attention because he is one of the key figures in American science who is also has this knack for being an organizer. Um, by, by his own admission, uh, he, wasn't, he didn't think of himself as the most brilliant researcher, but what he was very talented at was networking, connecting people, uh, seeing potential in his mentees. One of his mentees turns out to be Claude Shannon. Um, when Claude Shannon is at the University of Michigan, he sees uh, on a bulletin board, tacked to a bulletin board, a little postcard that says, essentially says, come, come east and help build a mechanical brain. And that, uh, he sends in an application. He later says that it was one of the things he worked hardest at was this application. And it attracts the attention of, of Vannevar Bush. And Bush, there, there, we, we think that there is something in Bush that helped him recognize this talent because, you know, Bush probably had his pick of the litter of people from East Coast schools and, and the sort of uh, privileged environments on the East. But, but Claude Shannon stands out to him. He brings him to MIT. And Vannevar Bush is one of these people who, in addition to doing everything that he's done, he's very good at emphasizing to Claude Shannon the need to remain a kind of generalist. Uh, this isn't for lack of substance and depth, but he doesn't want him to become trapped in what he calls a monastic cell. Uh, he would like for him to continue to explore different things. And it's not just a faint wish. He actually pushes him to explore different things. He has him work on the differential analyzer. He also has him work on something called the rapid fish microselector. Uh, he has him, uh, for his PhD dissertation, work on theoretical genetics. Uh, and he sends him up to Cold Spring in New York, Cold Spring Harbor, New York, and has him has him go to the what is at the time the largest collection of genetic information at the eugenics laboratory. And this is something that, you know, for Shannon, we, we can imagine him looking a little bit puzzled. Like, I'm not a geneticist. I'm not a biologist. Uh, I'm training, you know, in, in mathematics and engineering. But but Vannevar Bush is very insistent that uh, there is some value in being a generalist. So he sends Shannon to do all these things. Um, importantly, he nominates him for some awards, which we suspect Shannon would not have nominated himself for any of these awards. Uh, Shannon ends up winning for this famous master's thesis, a significant prize called the uh, Alfred Nobel Prize, not to be confused with the Nobel Prize. Um, it's a it's it's a an important award in engineering for a very promising young student, and he wins, and he's asked to give a, a talk on his paper in Washington D.C. All of this happens because of Bush. Uh, Bush is also in a position to help Shannon later, um, because he is he he is one of the key organizers of the wartime effort in American science. And he actually, if I, if I remember correctly, he goes into Franklin Delano Roosevelt's uh, and asks him to set up uh, the the NRDC, the kind of committee that oversees all of all of what science, what American scientists are going to do to help the war effort. That is all Van Bush. Uh, Rob Goodman, you know, one of the things uh, about uh, this time, and I think this is a, a, one of the key themes of this book, is the sense of the import of amateurism, essentially, in Shannon's life and in his theory and the way that is played out today. That's still a, a key aspect of our understanding is, is to you have to approach things from a fresh point of view. Yeah, and that, that's right. And I think one of the things that makes Shannon so distinctive 
as a scientific mind is that his interests were so eclectic and they were so all over the place. Um, he wasn't the only very smart person working on problems of uh, computer design, uh, symbolic logic, engineering, and, and uh, information theory, which we'll probably get into a little bit later. But he was someone who um, was really committed to being a generalist, someone who always loved to build. But on top of his interest in, in putting things together, he was someone who loved reading literature. He was inspired by you know, T.S. Eliot and Edgar Allan Poe stories about uh, codes. Um, he was someone who uh, loved playing jazz clarinet and loved music. He was someone who uh, liked writing his own sort of nonsense uh, literature and his own little nonsense invention ideas like the uh, the excerpt we read at the beginning of this. Um, he was someone who thought seriously about the nature of language, and he asked sorts of questions that um, you know linguists or humanists might ask. So although he was a very talented uh, mathematical mind first and foremost, he was also someone who just uh, was never afraid to dabble, was never afraid to... Um, jump into a field he knew nothing about, educate himself to the best of his ability, and then just plow forward. Um, and on the one hand, uh, you know, you can do that when you have a Claude Chen level intellect. But on the other hand, um, he uh, resisted the tendency to get uh, pigeonholed for most of his career. And, uh, you know, I think the influence of some of his early uh, mentors, especially Bush, uh, is a big part of that, uh, because these were all people that talked about the importance of um, you know, allowing time for your mind to wander and allowing yourself not to get pigeonholed in a particular specialty. I think if there's a, one thing that's valuable to take from the book, it's uh, it, it's about the dangers of specialization and about the values of being a generalist and how insights in different fields can come together in really uh, surprising and shocking ways. You know, Shannon himself said that you know, when we're on the subject of this uh, master's thesis he wrote, he said that, that it, it wasn't as if no one was thinking about mathematical logic or computer design. It was that no one was thinking about both at the same time. Uh, and that just happened to be sort of a coincidence uh, in Shannon's case. But because he had these two fields in mind at the same time, he recognized this incredible analogy um, that turns out to be very much common sense to us because we're we're dealing with this almost 100 years after the fact. But at Shannon's time, it wasn't common sense to anyone. And that's why it was recognized as so groundbreaking. So, Jimmy, uh, this is at uh, Bell Labs. Bell Labs is this incredible incubator. It is the Google Plex of the 1940s and 50s. Uh, so talk about the the his time his time there and, and you mentioned that he was a jazz player. I think this is very interesting because I think a lot of scientists in particular mathematicians uh like um music because music is very mathematical. But what's interests me is that jazz music is chaotically mathematical. So that would be it seems to me that would be something where somebody uh, an intellect like Shannon would really want to try to Find find the patterns in the chaos, or create patterns with chaos. So Shannon had a lifelong love of music, and uh, it starts when he's a boy. Uh, he plays the French horn, uh, and he kind of graduates to jazz jazz clarinet. The question of the chaos is an interesting one. It's it's not that hasn't necessarily come up in exactly that way. Although I I completely see how it would make sense uh, that that his mind would would latch onto that. There's a there's a funny moment where. Um, People people ask us, what did he have strong opinions on? And it turns out Shannon had some strong opinions on math. He had some strong opinions on engineering. He didn't have any strong opinions, seemingly, on anything other outside of those two other than jazz. Uh, he had really strong <laughs> opinions on which jazz musicians were good, which ones were bad. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a lifelong fascination. He spends a lot of time when he's living in New York in the West Village going to jazz clubs. And the report of that time suggested he would just go to clubs and he would sit and nurse one drink uh, the entire time. He would just sort of stare at the at the music. So I do imagine an intellect 
of his stature, the things that if I listen to jazz, I hear one thing. I think if Claude Shannon was listening to jazz, he was seeing things and, and understanding things in a way that I'm not sure I can appreciate. Um, to, to take a quick step to your to the first part of your question about Bell Laboratories, uh, during the after Shannon finishes at MIT and earns his PhD, he's awarded a fellowship to go to uh, Princeton's Institute of Advanced Studies. Mm. Um, and this is at the time, sort of, and it still is, an extraordinary gathering of intellects. Uh, Ein, uh, Albert Einstein, John von Neumann, uh, Godel, uh, you know, I mean, you name it. This is a who's who of the world's great scientific and math minds. And Shannon is invited in uh, as, a, as a fellow. And he goes... And it's a very difficult time for him. Um, there are a couple of reasons why. He has a, what we would now probably refer to as a, as a starter marriage that collapses. Um, <laughs> That's to a, Norma. To, to Norma Barsman, a, a screenwriter uh, who, who later actually ends up on the blacklist uh, and has to self-exile to Europe. Um, but is it, the collapse of his marriage, it's also the time when the draft is about to start. And Shannon is, is ambivalent about uh, – well, no, I'm sorry, not ambivalent. He knows he doesn't want to deploy. Uh, he sees himself as some. He knows he's a frail man. He doesn't think he'll do well in the close quarters of army life, and he thinks also that he'd be much better at helping the U.S. war effort with his brain uh, and doing mathematics. So while he's at Princeton and the draft has started, his mentors manage to secure him a contract working on fire control for Bell Laboratories. Fire control is the science of how you shoot things down from the sky. Uh, it's how Navy gunships would uh, do the math required to, to shoot down a missile or an enemy plane. And Shannon is responsible for working through the complex statistics and probabilities involved. He goes after, he, he, at, the, at the beginning, this work is done at Princeton. He, he moves to Bell Laboratories. And Bell, as you said, is one of these incredible hubs of innovation. We, we like to say it, if you imagined a freak merger tomorrow of Apple, Google, and Facebook, uh, <laughs> that is Bell Laboratories in the 20th century. <laughs> it's the nation's second largest employer. And just to run through a couple of the things they did, and these are, you know, I say this lightly, but think about it. Uh, they invented the fax machine, co-invented the laser. They invented long-distance phone calls, long-distance telephone transmissions. They synchronized the sounds and pictures in movies Oh, and they won six Nobel Prizes along the way and were home to Claude Shannon and his information theory. And that is just barely scratching the surface of what this incredible company did. They benefited of oh, the course, transistor. But, oh, so I'm sorry. I missed the transistor. <laughs> we always miss well. the transistor. Right. We always <laughs> miss the transistor for oh, that, that small pesky thing. Yeah. Um, this is a company that uh, had enormous resources, of course, but the way they put those resources into practice was by bringing on people like Claude Shannon, who are these phenomenal intellects. They set them loose on interesting problems, and it's 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 really one of those things. I'm not sure there is uh, an information theory or or any of Claude Shannon's later achievements without Bell Laboratories. Rob, tell us about how um, hitting the targets and also this idea. I think this is a key, another key concept: the import of analogy. In, in science, it's really a, a key concept and something that, that Claude Shannon was very, very good at. That matters. Yeah, he was really good at bringing together sort of disparate fields and figuring out what they had in common and using this to sort of power some of his breakthroughs. So, so I mentioned just a little bit earlier the analogy that he comes up with between uh, mathematical logic and switches. Um, but there are all sorts of analogies later in Shannon's career. You know, in, in the area of uh, fire control that Jimmy was talking about, um, yeah, as he mentioned, it was a very sort of uh, statistically complex field. Um, 
that was a lot about figuring out, uh, you know, uh, averages and inferences from uh, what a plane is doing and where it is likely to be a, a second from now. Um, uh, it, it turns out that as Shannon would later go on to explore in his information theory, um, there's something about uh, messages that overlaps in a sense because uh, figuring out how to compress uh, and accurately transmit a message is also about uh, statistics and probability. It's also about understanding uh, the, the probabilistic nature of information, which means basically understanding how all these sorts of uh, implicit rules we have whenever we communicate uh, make our language and our messages, whether they're images or, or music or, or pictures or words, kind of more or less predictable, uh, which essentially means that when we communicate, we're, we're following all sorts of probabilities, and some things are more likely to come after another. Uh, they're, they're more, they're, they're less than random, and, and that's important for information theory. Uh, and just to take an example, um, in uh, one section of the book when we talk about information theory, we say that uh, there are all sorts of rules in language that um, make it, uh, that, that control your choice of the next letter and the next pineapple. And then we have a little asterisk and we say, you see, because you're aware of these rules, you know that pineapple was impossible there and that was a transmission error, that there's no way anyone would say pineapple. Uh, and, and that's just a very broad example of what goes on all the time in language. So the other big analogy that Shannon's into uh, that comes out of his time uh, in, uh, in wartime is um, his work on cryptography. Uh, we mentioned his love of uh, coding and codes, but um, it turns out that there are a lot of insights you can sort of port over from the field of encoding messages to the field of uh, encoding them for transmission and then decoding them for uh, reception on the other end. Uh, you know, Shannon himself said that there is a lot of overlap between uh, concealing messages and then transmitting them accurately. And he described it as a, this big flow of ideas from one to the other. And this is another huge analogy that plays out in his wartime work. But then he also takes some of the key insights from that work and moves it over into the field of information theory. Uh, that was just, um, again, a leap that few people were involved in at the time. And, and because Shannon had his fingers in so many different pies, he was able, I think, to, uh, to get to insights that uh, other people might not have had access to, even if they were equally smart. You know, Jimmy, I, 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 his time uh, in cryptography was really interesting where he was working on Project X Sig Sally and particularly uh, the vocoder, which we all know today is uh, responsible for uh, the robot voices and many <laughs> and much mm -hmm. music. And uh, but so talk about how the, the thing about the vocoder was that it created data from the human voice. This was a big deal for Claude. So this is a project that, again, it's one of these incredible technological coincidences that Claude Shannon, uh, having the mind that he does, ends up at the only place in the world that is developing this technology. Uh, and there were actually two technologies. One was the vocoder and one was the voter. Uh, one took speech and turned it into data, and the other took data and turned it into speech. And, you know, these can seem, seem like insignificant things to us in the world of, you know, Siri uh, and, 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 uh, and, you know, Dragon Naturally Speaking and all the rest. Um, but these are incredible things at the time, and they are being put in service of the U.S. war effort because one needs to be able to transmit messages with perfect accuracy uh, and with utter secrecy. Uh, and so Shannon is actually involved in Sig Sally, as you mentioned. This is the technology that's used to help Winston Churchill and Franklin Delano Roosevelt communicate securely, among other uh, applications. It's a room-sized computer. Shannon 
him by his own admission, uh, he's a part of a big team of people working on this. Uh, and he arrives at Bell Labs when he's in his mid 20s. So he's not, you know, the the founder or the uh, the creator of it. But he does play an important role in helping to drive some of the mathematical thinking. I think the other piece of this um, that is important and interesting is that this is also his first set of interactions with Alan Turing a name that's going to be more familiar to your listeners uh, in part because of, of the Enigma, the, the, I'm sorry, the Imitation Game, the movie, which is based on the book, The Enigma. Um, I confess, this was my favorite chapter in the book to write um, because the idea that Alan Turing and Claude Shannon, two of the sort of godfathers of the information age, uh, were spending time together is extraordinary to me. And it's interesting further because neither of them were particularly social guys. <laughs> these are not people with, these are not, neither of them had a lot of friends. And Alan Turing comes to the United States on a billet to essentially inspect the American systems for security. Uh, the British, they're very suspicious of the Americans. They don't know that they're going to be able to transmit information securely. So they send Alan Turing, their finest, to come here and test it. And they end up uh, having tea every day in the Bell Labs cafeteria. And again, these are not guys who take well to strangers. And so they recognize something in each other. And interestingly enough, both of their governments forbade them from talking about their cryptographic and code-breaking work. So what are they free to talk about? Oh, questions like, can a computer be made to think? Uh, how would you program such a computer? Is the brain a computer? And so you end up having these two giant intellects spending time together talking about all these essential questions about early computing and artificial intelligence. And, you know, Rob and I joke, we would have loved to eavesdrop on these on these teas. Um, there's one other point, which is Alan Turing ends up visiting Claude Shannon at his home in the West Village. And we think that there's probably only five people or so who who got into Shannon's home at the time. It's a, it's a fairly extraordinary thing because Shannon really kept his own company. But Turing and he bonded enough that he invited Turing into his home. Uh, and so these these two people spend, spend this time together. I think that's the other lasting import of the work on things like Sig Sally and the voter and the vocoder. It's not just the mathematics. It's that he encounters this range of, of characters, including Turing, who are thinking about these problems. Um, all of this also contributes to the work that he's doing at night and on the weekends on what would later become, you know, a mathematical theory of communication. I think one of the things that you do so well in this book is Claude Shannon was a was a quiet man. He kept way under the radar as much as he could. <laughs> and I think that and he was surrounded by these really powerful people and forceful personalities. You do a great job in this book of creating his character arc and letting his quiet speak. You give voice <clears throat> to his lack thereof. And I think that's a, <clears throat> an interesting uh, challenge for you. This must have been hard for you as writers. Uh, he didn't leave behind a lot of uh, diaries, journals, uh, cell phone messages. <laughs> <laughs> Did he uh, talk about the challenge of just like uh, unearthing the stuff that makes this book so compelling? Well, thank you. And yeah, I think you're right about characterizing Shannon in that way. Um, in that, uh, you know, he certainly gave a, a number of interviews, uh, especially later in his life when he was a little bit wetter known. Uh, and yet he was always really uh, evasive. He was always kind of dismissive of people uh, complimenting him on his genius and whatnot. Uh, he would always kind of wave off uh, uncomfortable questions with a laugh or a joke. So he had this great sense of humor, but it was a really quiet sense of humor, and he loved um, uh, building things to to illustrate jokes. Uh, he loved um, um, you know coming up with uh, you know funny funny word puzzles or uh, funny thought experiments. But again, um, 
that, that that's part of the challenge in that uh, Shannon was not really a, a colorful, uh, vibrant, outgoing personality. What was so vibrant about him were the things that he worked on and the way that his personality expressed itself um, through through ideas and through playfulness, which is you know where we would get the title of the book, A Mind at Play. Um, I'll just give you one example. One of the things that Shannon built was called The Ultimate Machine. Um, and you might have seen a video of this on YouTube. It's, it, it, it's terrific, and it really just sums up his ridiculous sense of humor. It's, it's a box, and you flip the switch, and the box starts vibrating, the gears start turning, and then the uh, lid opens, and a little robot hand comes out of the box, flips the switch to turn itself off, and then retracts back into the box. And that's the kind of thing that, that that's Shannon's sense of humor. That's what he thought was hilarious. And it wasn't just, it wasn't that he thought, um, oh, that would be a funny thing. Well, that would be a funny thing. I mean, someone should build that. Like I imagine maybe a lot of us would think. He actually went to the trouble of putting it together, which you know surely must have taken him uh, hours and hours of extracurricular time just to do it. And and that's that that's what made him distinct is that not just that he came up with so many jokes like this, but that he had the other uh, wherewithal and I suppose the discipline to actually follow them through and make them so that there are so many different collections of things that Shannon made. There's his customized unicycles. There's his flame-throwing trumpet. There's his juggling clowns. And you have to you have to include these in a biography of Shannon because that's that's where he put his personality. He didn't put his personality in sort of, uh, you know, outrageous love affairs or, or, or screaming matches with people or um, outspoken political opinions or anything like that. Uh, he put his personality into these objects, and you have to sort of understand them uh, to understand... Uh, who he was and who this person was. And, you know, even going back to his scientific work, um, part of what made it so uh, stunning to his colleagues was not just that it was um, amazingly farsighted, not just that it was a breakthrough, but um, that he was so quiet about it the whole time. Uh, there's this uh, comment from one of his colleagues at Bell Labs who says uh, about Shannon's information theory paper, it came like a bomb. Uh, and part of the reason was because it just exploded and caught everyone off guard because he'd been working on this for uh, uh, nine or 10 years and hadn't really clued anyone into it. He spent a lot of time working on it in his spare time at home. He spent other times kind of behind his closed door at the office uh, scribbling away, and no one really knew what Shannon was up to. And then uh, one day he just drops it um, in uh, 1948, and it uh, blew people away because he was not the sort of person to go around tooting his own horn about this amazing venue he was working on, and that just wasn't him. Uh, and, but what you do see of him, the, the, the curiosity and the willingness to ask some your ridiculous and productive questions, that's all over his actual work. The A Mind to Play is is really important. And I think that um, this comes from uh, this, there was a shift in his, in the way he talked about things when he, when things went from intelligence to information. And this was just before what you call the bomb. And I think this is so fascinating, uh, this, his paper, uh, what he did is he took six boxes and broke down um, essentially information theory from 1948 to 2017. <laughs> Everything he he developed is still completely applicable. And I think that this too gets to one of the core aspects of the Internet itself, which the Internet is is just one giant copying machine, essentially. It's really a series of tubes. <laughs> <laughs> Invented by Al Gore. <laughs> That's right. Uh, well, when it's, not, uh, when it's not being a tube, it's, it's in a tube state or, <laughs> or a copy state. So uh, we're, we're in the wave state of copying. Um, communication is essentially an attempt to copy. You have words here. You want to get the same words there. The 
big antagonist is noise. So, uh, Jimmy, tell us about this simple box breakdown and, and how he developed that. It's really a, it's a fascinating piece of work to read. And also, right t- taking his paper, which is long and complicated, and turning it into some page-turning prose. Well, we we appreciate the uh, the praise. It was not uh, it was not easy. We joked that it took it took two minds to to write about one mind. Um, <laughs> I I think that there's there's a couple things that we can say about the paper. Um, just for a little bit of context, this is published as two parts, seventy seven pages in the Bell System Technical Journal in nineteen forty eight, and Claude Shannon's been working on it essentially on nights and weekends for you know ten years or so. He first has his ideas. The germ of the idea is. We can tell the origin starts in 1937 when he writes to his advisor, Van Bush, about he's thinking about some fundamental properties of communication, that he's noticing that that there's certain structural things that are the same from Morse code, uh, telegraph, telephone calls. Over 10 years through his work on fire control, cryptography, et cetera, this gels into what becomes the mathematical theory of communication. Now, there are a lot of parts to this, um, and probably, I mean, there are entire conferences to the, uh, devoted to this, to the study of it. So there's only so much that we can get through on a, on a short conversation like this. But the, there's a couple of essential ideas that are worth appreciating. The first is, for Shannon, all messages are the same. A tweet, a song, a picture, uh, a phone call, uh, a text, they're all the same. Uh, they are all reducible to bits. Uh, that is one. So, so the one, the one insight is everything's reducible to the same thing. The second insight is everything is reducible to bits. Now he had wanted to call this initially; had called it binary digits, uh, but his his colleague actually said you should just combine those two and make it make it the bit. Uh, and so it's kind of extraordinary that the bit is born in in 1948 out of that conversation, out of Shannon's work. The paper gives gives a a kind of conceptual framework for how to think about all communications and that's the grids you were talking about uh and this grid has actually become you know it's, it's famous and now people use it in many different fields um but that's really only sort of part one of what shannon's doing he's also giving people a view into how you would compress enormous amounts of information uh, and this is the reason that you know we can at, a, at an earlier era watch one dvd instead of 17 um, because you can compress enormous amounts of information um, he's also giving people a window into the possibility of encoding information. So how can you make sure that something arrives from point A to point B with perfect accuracy? Well, you can use things like redundancy and probabilities to encode this information. And this doesn't seem, again, like an extraordinary thing to the people listening, but it, but it's, it's only obvious because Claude Shannon thought of it. Uh, and it's only obvious after the fact. And it's only obvious because we just take it for granted that we can put, push a button on our phone and a car shows up. But all of that information transfer from our, you know, the, the app to the phone, to the phone to the satellite, satellite to you know, the car sharing, so all of that is a series of ones and zeros. And someone had to come up with that notion and then give engineers the tools to bring that to all to pass. That is Claude Shannon's great insight, and that's why we don't think it's much of a stretch to say that he's the father of the information age. Certainly, there are other people who are involved in taking his ideas and bringing them to physical life, um, but that that idea uh, we think is is on the level of you know uh, something like an E equals M C squared or a Copernicus, uh, because someone had to really he, his dis- set of disciplined thoughts went into that. The other thing is 
<laughs> when the paper is first published, he calls it modestly a mathematical theory of communication. A year later, when it's reprinted in book form, uh, the people who helped put the book together uh, relabel it. They call it the mathematical theory of communication. And it just speaks to the, the power and force of the ideas. Uh, Rob, one of the things I, I love is that uh, you have a, a great quote from him. Seldom uh, do more than a few of nature's secrets give way at one time. I think that this is a, a great insight into the way he, he thought. And this uh, insight uh, came around the time that Forbes uh, magazine uh, uh, popularized his his work in a in an article called the Information Theory. This is 1953. Mm -hmm. Boy, that's the birth of our world right there. You're right, and and the interesting thing is that Shannon uh, felt a little bit ambivalent about it. On you know, on the one hand, he was very proud of his accomplishment, and he was very interested in people that were expanding his insights. And as Jimmy mentioned, figuring out. Uh, what exactly these new sorts of digital codes for transmitting information would look like and how you could actually do the process that he proved must exist but hadn't really gotten into the details of yet. Um, on the other hand, uh, he's a little bit ambivalent about the way that people are sort of using and abusing and misusing the idea of information theory. And this starts sort of with this big push towards popularization. Um, there's a period in which everyone is talking about information theory as if it's sort of the, the master clue to everything. And people are using it to explain bird songs and music and politics and geology and, and everything because it's one of these cool, flexible metaphors. And we talked about the Shannon diagram with the six boxes that explain any message. Well, you could imagine how people start using that to explain messages in, in any kind of other field, whether it's scientifically rigorous or not. So when Shannon's uh, explaining that few of nature's secrets give way at once, I think he's sort of cautioning people to think uh, away from thinking that just because we've had this great breakthrough in communications technology, we, we've figured out uh, some sort of bigger secret to nature. Uh, he was always very conservative about how far you took his ideas. So he wrote this great uh, four-paragraph article in, in one of the um, newsletters in the field, and he called it the bandwagon, where he described information theory as a bandwagon, and he told people to, to kindly please get off of it. Uh, <laughs> and, and he said that um, that there was... Of course, still plenty of room for, for uh, um, technical and rigorous applications of the math that he had done, but that people were overinflating the discipline when they thought that it was going to solve everything, when they thought it was on the level of, I don't know, psychoanalysis or, or maybe the way that people use evolutionary psychology today or just one of these kind of big frameworks that people probably don't know a lot about but are happy to borrow the terms from. So uh, Shannon kind of put the kibosh on that. And in a way, he kind of put the kibosh on his own stature as you know, sort of public intellectual or someone who'd like to pontificate about science. That was, that was never really his game. Um, so part of the challenge in the book is we want to do justice to what made Shannon's insights valuable and explain how we got there to the best of our ability and explain to a, a lay audience what's special about it. But we also want to, to pay attention to his advice and, and don't pretend as if information theory is the key to everything. It's not, but it's the key to a lot of really interesting things. Um, and sort of splitting that difference, I think, is a way of, of honoring Shannon's intentions around information theory. Uh, Jimmy, 
he did have some interesting. Uh, he had his his moments of fame. There was Thesis the Mouse. He he got to hang out. Uh, he had a lot of fans, including L. Ron Hubbard. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, not surprising, I think today he'd be surrounded by uh, the cyberpunk school of science fiction. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about um, his time with uh, Thesis the Mouse and his very his demands the demands of fame. So after information theory is published, uh, you know, his scientific star starts to rise. Um, This is somebody who, you know, at 21 had this incredible master's thesis and 30 in his early 30s. By the age of 32, he's published information theory. He works at Bell Laboratories, one of the most prestigious labs in the country. He's thin. He looks good in a suit. So fame, fame arrives. (laughs) Uh, He is he is given a a spread in Vogue magazine. Uh, The the, you know, the the uh, ambition of every great scientist. Uh, (laughs) And he is photographed by Henri Cartier-Bresson, who, you know, he had photographed Queen Elizabeth's coronation. He had photographed Mao's funeral. I mean, this is serious stuff. And, you know, he's written up in Forbes magazine as one of the most promising scientists of his era, uh, I think in 1954, 55. And uh, he's put next to Richard Feynman and James Watson, uh, I mean, future Nobel laureates. He's put on TV. He's, he's asked to do promotional videos for Bell Laboratories. And one of the videos he's asked to do is a demonstration of Theseus the maze-solving mouse. And so late at night, uh, both Shannon and his wife work on building a structure, a maze, and in which they put a, a tiny little robotic mouse, and the mouse can go through the maze, learn its way through the maze, and then remember how it made its way through the maze. Now, this is going to sound unimpressive in a world of self-driving cars, but we are talking about 1956. So he has built an artificially intelligent mouse in 1956, uh, and he and his wife do the wiring at night. And as best as we can tell, they just did this for fun. Um, Shannon visited London, and he went to the famous hedge maze and t- had trouble finding his way out, and then said, well, what if I could build a machine that could get out of the maze faster? Uh, so he builds this maze. and. They people are blown away. He tours the country, taking it on demonstrations. He takes it to the Bell Labs. This is one of my favorite stories in the book. He takes it to the Bell Labs board of directors who asked to see it, and they he shows it off. And one of the board members goes, well, "This is exactly the kind of thinking we need at Bell Laboratories. Let's put Claude Shannon on the board." <laughs> Which everybody in the room was like, "You can't do that. <laughs> He's an employee." Um, and so. So he, he the, the the mouse makes it into the pages of Time magazine. The headline is, this mouse is smarter than you are. Um, all of this arrives, and Shannon has what I think of as a sort of fork in the road moment. On the one hand, you can go be a, a public intellectual and a celebrity, and you can go give talks and, and write books and all the rest. He chooses it the other fork in the road, which is he's going to continue his, his research. He's going to live an essentially private life. Uh, he moves to Massachusetts, becomes a professor at MIT, and he keeps tinkering and doing research and contributing to the field, he doesn't allow him this sort of fame to go to his head and, you know, he doesn't write columns for magazines and, and things like that. Um, and, and, and I don't think he looked down on that kind of work at all. I think it was that he wanted to go where his curiosity was, which was not in the direction of how do I become more famous, but answering questions like, well, can I build a robot that solves a Rubik's Cube, uh, which is something he actually worked on. Can I build a machine to play chess, uh, which he did. He built a de- an ancestor of Deep Blue. And so he becomes, in the 1950s, this is an era in which the figure of the scientist uh, after the war is, is a real public, public thing. And Shannon is one of these figures, but it's not a good fit. Uh, and he, 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 re- he somewhat rejects it. He goes and, and pursues his own work for the next few decades. Um, 
But it, it is interesting to think of, and I think it's particularly helpful to think about it in an era in which people are even more interested in overnight celebrity, that they think, you know, sort of one YouTube video or one Instagram post is going to be the thing that makes their careers. Um, Shannon was had a bit of an allergy to it and, and wanted sort of that world to stay away from the rigor and thoughtfulness and kind of curiosity and comedy that went into his work. Uh, that was more interesting to him. I think fame sought out Claude Shannon. Claude Shannon did not seek out this kind of attention, but his work was so attention-getting. And he, he was such an interesting figure. People wanted to know who was this man who did this great theoretical work and also built mice in his spare time. Uh, and so that's just a bit of a bit about how he, you know, his interactions with that with that world. Yeah, I have to wonder why nobody's uh, done what you guys have done before and done so well. Uh, I'd like you both to speak to, you know, what can we learn from from Claude Shannon? What what are the lessons that he taught beyond the the theories? Uh, what can we learn from his life and his approach? Uh, Rob, why don't you begin? Well, I'll, I'll take a couple of things, and we did think a lot about this because that that's sort of the what we wanted to add to this book was not just an appreciation of what it is that he did that's going to connect with a lay person. But, uh, you know, you can maybe learn that from going on Wikipedia for a little while. What we really wanted to convey was a sense of what kind of person is capable of doing this, uh, what kind of person asks those crazy questions, or what kind of person is behind those kind of breakthroughs. Um, so a couple of the things we came up with. One, I think we've mentioned this a little bit, but it's, it's the value of generalizing. It's that uh, Shannon was never one to allow himself to be pigeonholed. And maybe that's one of the reasons that he sort of um, resisted fame because when you become famous as a thing, that sort of freezes who you are. Um, you're famous as the information theory guy and you have to go around giving talks uh, about the applications of your theory and you can never get beyond it. Uh, after Shannon did, he was, he was certainly interested in following up the implications, but he also wanted to get beyond it into thinking about things like AI and, and computer chess and um, juggling. Uh, and juggling and the physics of juggling, which he wrote a whole paper on. Uh, and it was his ability not to get sucked into sort of becoming a caricature of himself that kept his mind fresh and that kept him exploring in so many different areas. Um, again, surrounded by all sorts of brilliant people, but few of them had as eclectic interests as Claude Shannon did. And all of his major, major insights were sort of insights of synthesis and fusion and bringing together fields that people thought had no business being brought together until Claude Shannon showed that they were natural fits. And you can't get that through over-specializing and through digging out your little niche to distinguish yourself. Um, and, of course, there are lots of pressures in the corporate world and in academia uh, that push people to do that. But this is a warning against uh, what some of the costs are. The other thing is that um, he was really conscious about designing a sort of life for himself that allowed him to give his mind and creativity free play. He was very conscious about his friends and relationships. You know, as we said, he... Uh, not exactly a loner, but he was not exactly an outgoing sort of extroverted fellow either. Uh, he liked to keep his door closed. He, uh, One of his colleagues described him as, well, I, I, I would call him not unfriendly, uh, but that's the sort of where he was. But the people that Claude Shannon struck up friendships with, you know, people both like uh, like Turing, uh, like John Pearson, Barney Oliver at Bell Labs, who were his uh, close friends and were just you know, remarkable scientific minds in their own right. Um, his, uh, his wife, uh, Betty Shannon, who was... Um, an outstanding mathematician in her own right and who um, worked with Claude Shannon as a, a sounding board um, and an audience and a, a corrector and, and proofreader and scribe and so on for a lot of his mathematical ideas starting in the uh, 
late 40s, early 50s, and, and, and on for the rest of his life. He, he surrounded himself with people who shared his interests, who challenged him, who directed his conversation and his life habits towards the things that valued him. He didn't waste time on, say, uh, you know, small talk or people who didn't challenge him and didn't interest him, which didn't mean that he was a jerk to them. It just meant that he was very deliberate about who he wanted to include in his life. And I think there's also something to be learned uh, from that as well. Jimmy? I think there's value in in one as in a couple a number of aspects of his life, but one of the ones that stood out to me was um, the value of working with your hands. Um, mm-hmm. He was an extraordinarily gifted theoretical thinker. He also spent his entire life, right up until his dying days, working with his hands. When he is in a nursing home, uh, tragically, quite tragically, suffering from Alzheimer's, uh, he takes apart his walker to see if he can improve upon the design. Um, he spends his entire life building things. And I think this matters to us today in part because it's hard these days to take things apart and, and rebuild them. Um, when I was a kid, it was this sort of desktop era. And I remember taking apart my computer and trying to improve it and doing little things and breaking it and having my parents get angry at me and all the rest. If I tried to take apart my laptop now, I would violate Apple's terms and conditions. Uh, if I tried to take apart my iPhone, it would no longer function. Um, I, you look at cars, you open up the hood, and there's a sort of plastic barrier between you and the guts of the engine. Uh, and it's, it's a good thing in my case. <laughs> well, well, and it might be a good thing in a lot of our cases, but I do think there's something lost mm-hmm. when we don't know how things are put together or how they work in that way. When things become so complex, past the point at which we can we can play with them. I, I that's that's part of it. Is I think there's there's a sort of Something that's 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 given up when we when we do that when our sort of agency that's given up. The other thing is it's actually quite enjoyable to use your hands to make things and to do things. And I think you know we were talking about this earlier, but during the course of writing this book, I, 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 this is a small example, and it's not Claude Shannon level at all. But I found that like I took uh, cooking food more seriously because it was one of the few times during the day when I was using my hands to do something very tactile and. I would consciously think about the fact that, you know, Claude Shannon probably learned something from doing things with his hands. There have been other people who have written very thoughtful books about this. Uh, there's a book called Shop Class, a Soul Craft, that's all about this. Um, but I'm not sure that we do enough to encourage that kind of tactile play. And I think that was a huge, huge contributor to Claude Shannon's brilliance. There was a great quote from one of his colleagues. Uh, He said, Claude Shannon had the ability not just to think about things, but to think through things. And to me, that that, that comes, that's that's clearly buried in the soil of this uh, hands-on tinkering. And, And I think it's something we ought to try to reclaim. The new book by Jimmy Sony and Rob Goodman is A Mind at Play. It's the story of the life of Claude Shannon, the father of the information age. Thank you for joining me, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.